one of the things that I was reminded of a little bit on vacation and then just even thinking about this passage is a cultural faux pas, like where you go to a different culture and you do things, or we hear from missionaries often, you know, don't do this when you're in our country, or I did this and I learned that this is a really bad thing. A um, couple of the different missions trips that we've been able to, uh, to take through the years, we've learned about some of those, those cultural faux pas. When we were in Brazil, I remember the first time Tom Latham, he said, all right, let's go out for pizza. So we all went out for pizza with our group. And the very first thing we did was picked up the pizza and started eating the pizza. He's like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. And he had to stop all of us because you don't eat with your hands. You eat with a fork and knife. So as you had to use the fork and the knife to eat this really thin pizza that, it, you know, if it's Chicago deep dish pizza, yeah, you eat it with a fork and a knife. But it was just one of those faux pas that you did not do in the, in the culture. Uh, I remember uh, when we were in Thailand, uh, I, kept, I kept like giving a, uh, not Ryan, I just lost other Beckman. Hudson. Hudson. I was, I was touching, touching his head. And he'd always look at me. He'd, what are you doing? What are you doing? And after a while, Nate was like, hey, that's, that's actually so you know, in Thailand, you don't touch the head at all. You would, never, you would never touch the head and you don't point to somebody's feet because it had to do with this is the part that's highest enlightened and closest to the heavens. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't touch someone's head. So it was, it was just one of those things where you learned, and it was a, a cultural faux pas. Growing up with my grandmother, my grandma was from uh, the UK in London, and uh, she grew up in London, and then after the war, she came over to the, the States. So we learned a couple different things about how, to, how we were supposed to eat our meat and how we were supposed to only cut one piece at a time. And if we would saw through the meat and have it all on the plate, she would, she would take our plate of food away and wouldn't let us eat because this is how you would, you would eat your meat when you would, were with grandma. So you would do that. Uh, there's an interesting one going on in London right now that Americans are getting in trouble with. Uh, there's, if you ever catch people, especially younger generations, doing all the selfie pictures where they're, they, for some reason, the idea of duck lips with the peace symbol, you know, like that is somehow like the new sexy or whatever. And so people are doing it all the time. Well, in, in Europe and especially in the UK, to give the peace sign and to give it backwards is actually the equivalent of, of giving somebody, of flipping somebody off. And so it's becoming a big thing in, in the UK. There are cultural faux pas that happen. Well, in, in this passage, we're going, to, we're going to come into a faux pas, but it's not done accidentally. Jesus is going to do something that is going to happen culturally that is going to cause great offense. In fact, if we, if we remember at the end of chapter 2, or chapter 2, verse 12, after he heals the man with palsy, that there is this great amazement. There is, they glorify God, verse 12, and they said, never saw, saw anything like this. And so Jesus is going to retreat for a little bit. The crowds are going to go find him in verse 13. And then as we looked at a few weeks ago, we, we even looked at he's going to now go call Levi, the Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. To, to understand some of this, there's a lot of cultural background in about five verses that we have to unpack to really wrap our heads around this. For the past 140 years, the, uh, the Pharisees uh, have had the authority, sorry, over the Jews, spiritual life, their ceremonial life, how they, how they practice religion, and their daily life, how the Pharisees would interpret the law. People would then, as a result of that, they would live their daily lives. And so this, is, this has been happening for decades now. 
It happened, it started all the way back in what's called the Hasmonean Revolt. There was a, there was a part, part of the Jewish society that raised up, they revolted, they lived in peace and freedom for a number of years. But the group that came out of that that was very popular during that time were the Pharisees. They were loved by the people. They had a pastoral aspect to the people. People would, would love, love the Pharisees just like you, many of you show love to us as pastors. And it was reciprocated by the Pharisees to the people. We come into, oftentimes when we read about the Pharisees, we come in with the boo, hiss, you know, bad guys, don't, don't like them. And, and we know rightfully so by the end, we understand why. But you, when you put yourself at the beginning of the Gospels, the Pharisees were the loved people. They were the loved spiritual leaders of the day. And they had authority and they had the opportunities to be able to direct and to lead people. Now their authority is starting to be challenged. So you have this escalation of power that's going up with the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, it's going to take a dip. And what's causing that dip is the authority that Jesus Christ is beginning to display. So as Christ is displaying authority, the masses are beginning to follow him. The fame, the popularity are now beginning to to happen. Think politically for a second. Put yourself in this position where you have someone threatening your power, your authority. They're still at their, their grassroots level. They're at the beginning of this. You can see it happening. You can see it starting to build up. What would you do? What would you do if your power, your authority was starting to be threatened? We're all so nice and kind, right? We let everybody take our authority away from us. You're going to go, stand up against it. You're going to go against what's threatening. Are you going to seek to maybe undermine? You think politically. We, we see it all the time. Let's undermine their political position. Let's undermine theirs. And you're trying to, to rip out the authority. If you cut off the head of the snake, everything else is going to die with it. So that's how the Pharisees actually start this. They're going to start going at the head. They're going to start the attacks toward Jesus Christ. And eventually when they're seeing they're not going to make, make room there, they're going to attack the disciples. And we'll see that unfold in the rest of chapter 2 into chapter 3 over the next weeks where they're going to go at it because they want to take out, they're losing their power, they're losing their authority, they're losing their fame. And even on top of that, if we as, if we as pastors see somebody come in and begin to start leading, begin to lead people astray, isn't it our responsibility and shouldn't we go to defense to, to undermine their position and show you why it's wrong biblically and what's, what's wrong? Absolutely, we should be doing that. Well, that's how the Pharisees are looking at some of what Jesus is doing. We come into it with these glasses that say everything that Jesus did was right, and rightfully so. But the Pharisees are coming from a pastoral perspective and looking and saying, they're, they're, he's, he's leading them astray. He's ripping them apart. But the problem is, is, when every time the Pharisees have a question, Jesus has the answer. And Jesus is able to talk about that. And Mark drives these passages with questions. And so as it, as it comes, to, comes to fruition here, we're going to start to see that there's, there's more culture that comes into it. We have the Pharisees. Now we have these, these tax collectors. There's an individual by the name of Robert Hansen. He lived in Chicago. Uh, he was arrested in the mid-90s. I remember when it, when it came out. But he had lived for 35 years in the Chicago area. He was an outstanding citizen. He was a, a member of uh, the church there, uh, a mainline denomination, big, big wig in the area. And everybody looked at this individual and said he was the model American citizen, had a great family. And it came out that he was one of the, one of the Soviet's biggest spies ever in America. 
And I remember even growing up the hatred that people had toward him. How could he do that to our country? He's a sellout. He's somebody who has turned his back on us as Americans, and he's doing that. He acted this way, but he's doing this. That is how the Jews felt about the tax collectors. Now, the the tax collectors, there were two different types of tax collectors. There were those who would bring in the income tax, the poll tax, they would, they, if you're a human, you're, you're an adult, you're going to pay a poll tax. If you have income, you're going to pay an income tax. So there were tax collectors who collected that, but then there were also customs officers. Customs officers were individuals who, let's, let's say I wanted to, I needed to collect the tax from this area of the, of the congregation. And so I need to collect, let's say, $5,000 in taxes from right here. So Lloyd and Bob are going to, they're going to bid it out. And they're going to tell me, all right, we can, we can do this. I can get you. You can give me 6000 Okay, you can give me 6500 Sold, 6500 So if he's going to give me $6,500 in taxes, even though I only need 5000 that's great because I get a little bit more. But Lloyd now has the opportunity to charge you whatever he needs to charge you. If he makes $8,000, $9,000, his, that's his commission. That's his profit. Now, everybody in this section, you're loving Lloyd, aren't you? Because you know I only need 5000 but he's ripping you blind because he wants, he wants more money. He's going to get it. So the Jewish people did not like the customs officers. Both were despised, but the customs officer was hated even more. So as you, as you look, we're going to start wrapping this into this passage in a second. The Jewish writings are very interesting. The, what are called the Mishnah and the Gemara, they write about this time. They write commentaries on some of this. They, they write the following st- statements. Tax collectors are to be lumped together with thieves and murderers. These are, these are Pharisees writing about how you are to treat and think about tax collectors. Those Jews who rendered taxes, somebody like Levi, like Matthew, they were disqualified as judges. They could not become a judge in a situation because they were dishonest. They were thieves. They were crooks. They were terrible. They could not be a witness in a court. Just we, we often think the shepherds are the only ones, but a tax collector was not allowed to be a witness in a court. What's really interesting to me is Jesus calls one of these to be one of his witnesses, to be one who testifies, which I, I think highlights the radical change that, that God can, can do in the life of an individual. They would be expelled from the synagogue, and they were considered a disgrace to their family. So you, you look at all these things. As you're a Jewish individual Lloyd is, I mean, you've, you're gone. You might as well just leave now. You're out of the synagogue. You know, go, go. But there's, there's that aspect to them. If they were, the Jews were forbidden. If you're a Jewish individual, you were forbidden to touch a tax collector. You could give them your money, but don't touch them because you were considered unclean. To receive money, you were not allowed to receive money from a tax collector. In fact, they went so far as to say you could not even receive alms from a tax collector. That's how much they despised these individuals, these tax collectors. This one blew me away. It's Jews were permitted to lie to tax collectors and be free from spiritual impunity. In other words, I could lie to a tax collector on the way to the temple and I wouldn't have to ask forgiveness of it whatsoever. Because I, and what's really interesting, there's two, different, there's two different pharisaical realms during this time. There's the school of Hillel and the school of Shimei. And very rarely did they ever agree on anything. It would be like Republicans and Democrats. And they don't agree. But the one thing they agreed on, not one of the things, but one of the things they agreed on was that you could lie to a tax collector. No problem. 
So I guess if you, I guess if you want to ascribe to one of them, you can lie in your IRS forms or whatever you want. But they look and they said that was, that was okay. That's how much these individuals as tax collectors were despised. A little bit more culture to wrap in here. Most of us understand when we look in, in this passage here, it says that Jesus uh, came to pass that Jesus sat, verse 15, at meat in his house. Many publicans and sinners sat also, and they're having a meal. This was not a sit down, pull up your chair type meal. We know from culture and custom that it would be something where they would often recline, their heads would be toward the center of the table, their feet would be away. But in not just how they reclined, in Semitic or Jewish culture in that area, the meal, the fellowship around the table was one of the most intimate expressions of friendship. So here is Jesus displaying, and, and the wording that, that Mark uses is not, he, it's that idea of the reclining meal. He is demonstrating an intimate friendship with, with these individuals. So let's look at the passage. It says that Jesus went forth again in verse 13. He goes forth again. He's going to teach, and then he's going to call in verses 13 and 14. So, so Christ comes in. The gospel is not something that was simply spoken by Jesus. This was something that he lived day in and day out. He just finishes and immediately he's going to go. And we, we see that in Mark. He's going to happen. He's going to go out again. He's going he's to preach the gospel. He's going to go out again. There's going to be times where he'll take some respite, some, some break. But then he's going to go out again. Because the gospel to him was not something that simply I just said. But he lived it out day by day. And as he goes forward, he says to Levi, he says, follow me. He doesn't say the follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, but he, he looks at follow, follow me. And he, this follow me is a loaded term. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It does, uh, it's not just this idea of, okay, I believe that or I'll ascribe to that thought, but it is a commitment. It is a turning. It is a risk and a cost assessment that says, I am going to go after this individual. And the proper response of faith is following. In chapter 10, verse 52, it talks about the individual who, he, by Christ says, your faith has made you whole. And it says he went his way and he followed after Christ. The consistent pattern, even in, even in the disciples' lives, is somebody who follows by faith Jesus Christ. They are, they are following after his way, his, his direction. So then comes the, comes the beginning of this cultural faux pas. He's going to sit down with his disciples. As he sits with his disciples and verse number 15, he and his disciples sit, and there he's around these other publicans and sinners, as it talks, for they were many, and they followed, they followed him. It's not just they didn't, become, they didn't become one of the 12, but these individuals, by faith, began to follow after Jesus. Jesus here is brought into contact again with unclean persons. Do you remember? He was with the leper, brought into contact with unclean persons. Here we go again, where he's brought into contact with, with ceremonially, religiously, by, by, the, by the Pharisaic or the, the scribal perspective. These individuals are unclean. So Christ should not be sitting with them. The word that's used here for sinners is the idea of the wicked. It's not the one who's the occasional breaker or transgressor of the law. Like, oh, I, you know, I, I disobeyed my parents today. I, I know I shouldn't, but, or, you know, it's the, oh, I told a lie, Lord, forgive me, I, I told a lie. But it is those who stand fundamentally outside of the law. It's, it's a chosen uncleanness. They're saying, these individuals are saying, we do not have time, we do not want part of this Pharisaic, this scribal, this Jewish 
tradition, this law. So they fundamentally stood opposed to what the, what the Jewish people, and especially the Pharisees, were standing to. The Mishnah, one of those Jewish writings, uh, sees them as what, what they call, he said, these, these uh, sinners were commoners who are too busy, too poor, too ignorant to live up to the rules of the religious authorities. Notice they don't say to the, to the rules of the Torah or the Jewish law. They say to live up to the rules of the religious authorities. And I, as I was thinking and reading about this, I, I thought, wow, how many times? And think about some of the parallels we often hear where we think, well, people who are outside the church, they're, they're too busy. They don't have time for church. They wouldn't understand it anyway. Well, maybe they're, they're too poor. They wouldn't fit into our, our type of church. Hopefully we would never say that, but you can hear some of those things being said at times in, in Christianity today. He sits with his disciples, the people who possess neither the time nor the inclination to regulate their scribal traditions. Again, talking about the sinners. They, are, they, they say the, the Jews, the Pharisaic Jews especially, the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, would look at these individuals and say they don't have the time, they don't have the desire to be part of our religious system or our church, even though I know it's not church. But they, they don't have the time, so we don't have the time for them. They're just commoners. Now, put that all together for a second. You have a house full of publicans and sinners. You have Jesus, who is a rabbi, in the, in the sense of he's a, a teacher. He has disciples following him. You have the religious elites looking and watching this. And now Jesus is going to sit and recline in a customary fashion, showing intimate friendship with these publicans and sinners who were tax collectors, who were seen as unclean, what implications does that have for Jesus? There's a huge guilt by association. He must be. What else? All the food Jesus eats is what? It's, it's ceremonially unclean. All the drink he drinks is ceremonially unclean. What about his disciples? They're unclean. There's going to have to be, if he's because we know later on he's going to go back to the synagogue, he's going to go back to worship, so there probably in Jesus's, there's going to be a time just to be potentially right with the others. He may go through some sacrifices, give some offerings. But we know that there is a dynamic here where it's definitely going to set them at odds with the scribal traditions of the day. The Pharisees are going to look and say, that we would never do that. In fact, we haven't done that for years and years and years, and I don't understand why you would do that. And it puts him at a, diametrically opposed to what, what the Pharisees were, were doing. So what ends up happening is there are many that, that follow him. And they follow him through this, this process. Now, in, initially you look and say, well, there's no call to repentance, there's no talk of faith, and there's not. In fact, some would argue that that's one of the reasons that the... the the scribes and the Pharisees were so upset with him is because he never talked about repentance. He never talked about salvation. But we know if you look at the, the end of the passage here, verse 17, he talks about that I have not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's going to give his ministry philosophy there. He's going to tip his hat to what he is doing. It's not that he's stepping away and just saying, I never want to share the need of repentance with these individuals. But he doesn't, he doesn't say that's a prerequisite. 
He doesn't look and say, that's the first thing I need to do in order to sit down at a table with these individuals. The, the follow, the basis of this table fellowship, so to speak, is the forgiveness of sins. Why can he have this? Because he is the one, as we learned earlier in the chapters, that he can forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive sins. He can go meet with these individuals because Matthew has followed him. He can now have this relationship with the intent of long-term being the forgiveness of sins. The grace of God, as we look at this passage, it extends to and overcomes the worst forms of human depravity. In the religious mindset at this point, these, these uh, tax collectors, they were vile. They were offensive to the Jewish person. And you would look and say there is no way possible that they could be worthy to be saved. And in fact, often in Jewish writings, they would say, you need to be involved in the Torah, you need to be involved in the reading of the law and of the scriptures in order to make yourself worthy to that point. Well, we look and say, no, that's not the case. The fact is they are unworthy and so am I. I have no worth to offer to Jesus Christ. I am a, I am a sinner. I am vile. I am repudiated by God because of my sinfulness, and so are you. And so we have this ability to come to the table because of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus Christ, he offers to us. Following Jesus is open to any and all types of people. This is a struggle that was happening in this this customary battle right here. Some were looking and saying, they're too far gone. Jesus is looking and saying, no, they need it. They need the physician. They need the help. They need the strength. They need me. And so it doesn't matter who. But I have to look and say, when I look at a passage like this, do I have people that I look around this world, that I look around our community, and I say, you know what, if if they never hear the gospel, so be it. No, hopefully we would never say that. But are there those people in your life? You're like, good riddance to them. You know what, they need to put them on an island, nuke them, and we're all good. And it'll get so much better here on earth. No, it won't. We're a depraved society. We're sick and vile and sin. Sinners who do not, do not need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. Notice that it says, verse 16, 15, 16, he, Jesus sits down to eat with them, to spend time with them. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the publicans and sinners, they said, how is it that he eats and drinks with these publicans and sinners? Then he's going to talk about they need, they need this. They need the repentance. They need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here. But he did not say, in order for me to sit down with these individuals, I first have to see that they are going to give up some of these things. I need to first see that they are going to choose Jesus Christ before I will have any fellowship or friendship with them. It's a struggle. It's a battle, a battle that we'll face as we wrap it up. Jesus is not prejudiced toward any class of people. There is not one. And if we are to be followers of the way, of the way of Jesus Christ, then we cannot have a prejudice toward any class of people. That is inherently wrong. It is sinful. 
And we have to look and say any class, any type, any sinner, anybody who is practicing any type of sin is, worthy, is, is not worthy of Jesus Christ, but has the ability to experience and accept the, the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, that's interesting. So anyway, the, hopefully... It goes. See, now, these were in case you missed all the blanks at the beginning. We're going all the way back to the beginning for some reason. And we're going to keep going through and through and through and through and through and through. And I know exactly what happened. And it's not the computer's fault. It's my fault. But I'll just keep acting like it's the computer's fault because then, no. I, uh, I remember hitting con- Control-A, which copies everything one time. And I remember hitting Control-V, but nothing showed up differently. So I just basically pasted 30 slides all in there. Okay, there we go. Jesus does not fear being contaminated by sinners, but instead contaminates them with God's grace and God's power. And I have a hard time. I, I wrestle through some of this. This is, this is a passage that I wrestle with. I, I must be holy. I must choose to not be of the world. But if I am so far removed from the people of the world, how can I ever contaminate them with the grace of God? How can I ever share with them the love, the power of God? By eating with sinners, Jesus does not, and Kevin, you were tipping your hat to this, it, Jesus does not approve of their sinful life choices, the guilt by association factor, but he does show how their lives can be transformed. He's going to sit down with them, and here's Levi, one of their own. He's like, hey, this, this, one of your own's followed me. He's changed his life. You can too. So, so you, have, you have earlier, you have friends who are bringing friends to Jesus Christ. They're ripping apart Peter's roof and lowering him down. Now you have coworkers bringing coworkers to Jesus Christ because they're looking and saying, this is who we are. This is what we're about. And we want to do that. Now the battle that, that takes place, and it ought to be, it ought to be, if you've been wrestling through it or thinking about it already from the beginning, is this spectrum of life. As Christians, we are called to not be worldly. And yet, we live in this world. And we battle with where, where do we fall? And there's this spectrum that takes place. And as we look at it, we can find ourselves in unbalanced, what I call unbalanced immersion, into the world. And Christianity in America, it's, it's, it's flowing this way. It just wants to be so much like the world. But when we are so much like the world and there is no difference, yes, we have an audience to talk to, but we have absolutely no message to stand on. The problem comes on the other side when we have an unbalanced isolation where we we say we need to be completely away from the world. We need to withdraw. We need to be our own community of believers to ourselves. We need to make sure we have everything that fits for us as a group. We need to fit all the needs that we have as a body of believers. And if the occasional person trickles in and they're inquiring about Jesus, that's great. But what happens then is we have, we have a great message, solid biblical preaching, solid stands for truths and convictions, but we have no audience. We have to find ourselves looking and saying, wait, I need to have a balanced insulation in the world. Many of you live this day in and day out. You walk into the workplace. 
I mean, I, I walk into my workplace and the, the worst thing that may happen to me is my boss may look at me cross-eyed or like, I don't want to talk right now. If that's the worst thing that happens to me, that's great. Some of you walk in and your boss reams you out. For, you didn't even know what you did. You don't even, it, it happens. And it's rough and you walk into the workplace and you're, you're surrounded by the world. You're surrounded by people who don't talk like we do, who don't act like we do, who don't uh, think like we do. And you're, you're finding yourself in this battle. But you're, you're trying to insulate, protect yourself, to be holy, to be righteous. And if we do that as believers, if we look and say, I am here, I am in the world, yes, but I am not of the world. I do not want to embrace worldliness, but rather I want to look and say, as I'm here, I'm going to live righteously, holy for God. I'm going to show the, the benefits and the grace that God has given me through my transformed life. That I can, now, I can now come to him. That I can depend on Christ when I'm going through the difficulties. That I can, I can treat others with respect because as I look at as a believer, that's, that's how I'm supposed to act. I can show interest in the lives of other people because as I look at them, they are made in the image of God and I have a responsibility to, to be showing them God's grace and God's kindness. I can, I can react to sin, but I don't have to overreact to sin. I can look and say, uh, yeah, I, I don't do that, and here's why. I don't have to, whoa, I would never do that, and make this big thing in the middle of the factory. Everybody's like, what's going on with that guy? But to look and say, I do need to react and say, I don't agree, or this is why. I can overcome evil with good. I can look and say, hey, this, this, I want to I be gracious to these individuals who are demonstrating evil toward me. I want to show the kindness and the love of Christ so I can live in this world the way that God de- desires me to. I can avoid evil, but I shouldn't avoid evangelism. I need to tell people. I need to share with them. So when we look at this story with Jesus Christ here, we do find that Jesus Christ is seated there with sinners. There is no way around that passage and so we can't look and isolate ourselves, but we can't just completely immerse ourselves in the, in the culture. Um, we, have to be, we have to be insulated. Some practical thoughts I was, as I was thinking about this. We should continually evaluate our relationship to the sinners or to the unsaved, to the world. If I don't have any relationships with somebody who's unsaved, there's a problem. I know that sounds almost blasphemous coming out of a pastor's mouth. I get it. But if I do not have any relationships with an unsaved individual, somebody who needs Jesus Christ, there's a problem. How can I, how can I make a convert, a disciple, what I'm called to do if I don't know anybody? If I'm not building a relationship with them? I have that responsibility and so do you. But if my relationships with individuals are beginning to draw me away from Christ, if they're becoming more and more worldly, and I find myself, I need to reevaluate and say, well, wait a second. Am I becoming unbalanced here? What am, I, what am I doing that's not good? Friendship with sinners is not equal to friendship with the world. Friendship with sinners is not equal to friendship with the world. I have a very good relationship with an individual. It's been four and a half years. I'm convinced he's going to get saved but he's not close yet. But we go out for lunch. We go hunting at times together. We'll go fishing at times together. 
but it's an opportunity for me to have this relationship with him. Sure, could it be said, well, you're going out with this guy, you know, I saw you go to this, this restaurant the other day. I didn't go to a bar or anything, you know, but what were you doing there? I can't live in fear of that. I have to evaluate my relationships. I have to have friends. Repentance was not a prerequisite for a relationship with sinners. It is a requirement for a relationship with God, but I'm not God. And so therefore, for me to have a, a friendship with somebody who is not saved I don't have to look and say, well, you need to repent and act like me and be like me and do the things that our church would do in order for me to have a relationship with you. And I would hope that we would not do that. But we need to make sure that that, that isn't something that we bring to our thoughts. Our strategies for reaching, for reaching sinners, both personally and publicly, must be effective. We may need to rethink at times what we do. And we do this as staff. We reevaluate publicly as a church. Are the ministries that we are doing for outreach, are they reaching into the community or are they just reaching us? Are they just providing something for us to do here rather than getting out into the community and evaluating and saying, hey, we're bringing in people. This is great. This is important. But it's not just publicly. It's you and I. We have a personal responsibility to share the gospel. I don't think we could argue that. And I don't think anybody here really would argue that. So we have to look and say, am I personally involved in making sure that what I'm doing is reaching out to sinners? Do I have a connection? Do I have a way that I'm, you know, it, it might be just going down to, to you know, maybe at your, the retirement community, there's a place where everybody gets together and talks. You're going to go start cultivating relationships there. It might be around the, the proverbial water cooler at work. You're going to start to build a friendship with somebody that you're going you're gonna to do something to establish that impetus to say, I need to be sharing the gospel personally, looking for ways into people's lives. Am I reluctant to develop friendships with an unsaved individual because of fear of what other believers may think? That's, that was at the crux of this whole dynamic. Jesus And the disciples especially are in the middle of this. What are the disciples going to do? Because they're with Jesus. They're around this, the publicans and sinners, the vile people. And the religious leaders who they've looked up to their whole life are saying, you're wrong. You shouldn't be around them. You need to, you need to go out and do something. Get away from them. What are they going to do? Are they in fear of because of what the other religious elites are going to say? Are they not going to follow after Jesus? Or are they going to look and say, no, I have an opportunity. And we know from the continuing of scriptures that they do follow after Jesus. They do follow after his way, his, his philosophy. Verse 17 is, is just really interesting. When we look at the passage as a whole, the Messiah sat with sinners. There's, there's no way around this. Verse 17, he looks at them with the answer to their question is, why would you do this? And he says, because I don't have a need to call the righteous, those who are not sick. He throws a proverb at them. Those who are whole or not sick have no need of physician. But rather, those who are sick, they need a physician, somebody to heal them. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, is the idea, but sinners to repentance. Christ lets us in on his ministry philosophy. He says, I came to earth because people need a savior. They need the Messiah. 
And it's those even who are opposed completely to the Word of God. Some of you work with individuals who are from completely foreign world religions. You work with Buddhists and Muslims. You work with Sikhs. You work with uh, individuals who are Hindu. And, And it's completely opposite to what we even look at as Christianity. They still need the gospel. You work with an atheist or somebody who says, I don't believe there is a God. They need the gospel. And if we look and say, well, they're not going to believe it. They're too busy. They don't have time. It's not for them. I'll find somebody who's like me. I'll find somebody who's seeking. Maybe somebody who's just out. Are we not falling into the potential trap of being like the religious elite? We have to share the gospel. We must get it out there. That is the passion of Jesus Christ to call sinners to repentance. And we must do that. When I was thinking about this, I probably should have done it, but it just, I kept, I could not get around the fact of the communion table. And thinking about that every time we as believers have the privilege to take communion, to think that that is a a foretaste of what is coming, but to think that in a way of, of remembrance, we are sitting around the table with the Messiah the one who died for my sins, the one who died for your sins. But are we content with that? Or do we realize that others need it? That we need to get out, we need to share, that we need to become friends with individuals, build relationships to share the gospel so that they can enjoy the grace and the power and the transforming, amazing, wonderful power of our holy and majestic God. The Messiah sat with sinners. Maybe for some of us, myself included, I need to work at building some more relationships. We need that. We need it in Christianity. We need it in our church. We need to have relationships with people who need the Lord. So God, I pray that you would help us as we go to prayer here. Lord, to help us to be thinking of individuals that we can share the gospel with, that we can build genuine relationships with. Lord, I pray as we take this time that you would help us to remember, to be thankful for what you saved us from. And Lord, for those who, maybe there's some here, I don't know, who don't know you, Savior. Lord, I pray that they would experience the wonderful saving grace and power that you offer to them, to any of us. So Lord, I pray that you would take this next few moments as we spend time in prayer as a congregation to hear our prayers, to answer our prayers. And Lord, we pray that sinners would get saved. Lord, I thank you that you are a friend of sinners. That we can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.